welcome to the Women's Theology Speakeasy, a space dedicated to hearing the voices of women over the din. Welcome everyone to the Women's Theology Speakeasy. Now, we're very lucky today, I'm joined by television producer Avril Welsh, who currently works on The Great British Menu. She's also worked on Smackmasters, which has been nominated for a BAFTA this year. But she will today be talking to us about her work as a storyteller, how this influences her theology and her study of the Bible. And in particular, we will be talking about the slightly naughty story of Esther. Hi, Avril. Hi, Charlotte. (laughs) So to start with, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your faith and your work? So I came to my faith quite late in life. When I say late in life, I'm only 37, so that's not super late. But um, I got confirmed last year when we moved from London to Solihull and we started going to church. And I always felt that there was some kind of someone looking over me throughout my life because when I was 10 I got struck by lightning and had to be resuscitated I was down dead and had to be resuscitated by my teacher so I always felt that there was someone looking after me and later in life I came to believe that that was God. So I'm married, I moved to Solihull with my husband who's from here two years ago as I'm a television producer and have been for most of my working life and decided to move to the Midlands uh, because my favourite show that I worked on was moving regionally, which was Great British Menu. So that's like a little bit about me and what I do. So your work is fascinating. Um, How do you think it affects your face? And this might be a really strange question. Do you find yourself reading stories from the Bible like almost like screenplays, like a kind of holy imagination? Yeah, so I really like this because I, I, when... What I do mainly with work is I find stories. I find real people. Before I did Great British Many, I find real people to go onto the telly to tell their story. So it's about finding that essence of something when you're talking to someone that you know is going to play out well and that they can sustain a certain amount of time on the telly. So when I'm reading things, even just in normal life, I visualise it quite heavily. I visualise what it looks like. My imagination runs wild in terms of I'm there within the story. And I don't think the Bible's that different to me because when I'm reading those stories, I'm imagining myself being there and thinking, how will this play out? What are these characters thinking? Why are they doing certain things? And looking at the text in terms of like how you might televise something how you might put something on screen because there are a lot of these stories and books of the bible that we read play very very well into that they play into the fact that they there's a there's a place there are people we don't know why they're there or how they got there which is why with kind of particularly with the gospels there's four gospels all told slightly differently from different people's perspective which is really interesting to try and then put together in your head the actual narrative or the story that is being told and how we can celebrate that really I'm not sure if that's a holy imagination or not but I always find myself in in those stories with all of the other people figuring out 
as like a viewer just behind what you can see just to think oh how might that look or how might that be and that's fascinating and not everyone has such an active imagination I guess it's necessary for your work Uh, I'm sure that most people that preach would love to be able (laughs) to think of the stories in that way and of course Jesus himself was a storyteller yeah exactly and I think that actually telling stories is really important and that's what I do in everyday life whether it be for Great British Menu finding a chef that um, has a story about how they got to be a chef or whether I'm casting a, a bride that needs to go and find a wedding dress and we're, we're going shopping for a wedding dress. There's always a narrative, there's always a story to be found and it's through talking to people that you actually dig a little bit deeper to get that story out. You know, the most... I come from a background of casting people onto telly and that whole point is finding those people that have something to say that can sustain a certain length of time on telly and that you're engaged by that you want to hear what they've got to say and you want to hear where they've come from how they got to it and you know whether they never thought they were ever going to get married before and then they're now they're looking for their dress that they never thought they would ever buy and that to me is how they get there the steps of how they get to that end point is really important in how you tell their story and we always look at right how can I tell this particular story what am I trying to say and it kind of goes in beats of three we do it in odd beats so there's always three points that we look at from one person because it's it's nice you have like like a beginning middle and end you have those three things that what beats do I want to say in that story and why am I telling it what are the reasonings behind why do you need to know those things and that might be something that is completely trivial it might be where they grew up it might be what job they do it might be the fact that you find out after being on the phone for 20 minutes that they're they've had a tragedy in their life and that's why they've turned to something else that's important it's it's people's lives and stories that are important and that's what I think of when when you're telling a story you have to look at everyone's perspective and that's what I find quite interesting about the bible is the fact that a lot of the stories with within there you're getting different perspectives and you're trying to figure out what they're seeing. And what I'm hearing as you speak is actually the importance of listening. And and I think sometimes at church, we can be very keen to have our own voices heard and not so keen to listen to other people. Avril, you're a member of one of my women's theology groups. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but since we've had to move to Zoom, we've all been a bit forced to listen a bit more like yes (laughs) rather than we can't always get our own voices across because if that little line isn't around your box you're not going to be heard by anyone (laughs) so actually stopping and having to listen to the end of what someone says before you start speaking has been a a really important thing exactly and I think that that is absolutely key we talk about this in telly all the time when you're doing an interview it's that golden silence after you've asked the question and they have spoken and you keep silent everyone feels very uncomfortable and will fill that with something that is more interesting than the answer that you've been given so listening to the end of the conversation or listening to the end of the listening to what they're actually saying and not concentrating on what you want to ask next is really important because people don't like silences and they will fill them with stuff that they might not want to divulge straight away, which I think is very interesting. It's a very good in, in, interview technique because people don't want to 
have a silence and contemplate what they're saying. Well, I'm getting tips from the expert here. This podcast is about to improve. (laughs) So, as I said, you're a member of the Women's Theology Group. We talk about women in the Bible a lot. I'm curious, who's your favourite woman in the Bible? So I thought about this and I was thinking, do I want to... Do I like a recurring person? Do I want someone that's singular on their own or that has their own book? And so I was toying with this quite some time and I felt that actually I felt I feel most drawn to Mary Magdalene. I feel she is there at all the most important things for me in the story of in the New Testament with Jesus. And the fact that she her sins weren't didn't really seem to be a an issue for Jesus and it he forgave her and then she sort of like moved on and went with him and then was there at the crucifixion was the first person to see him when he rose and she she was also the person that told everyone that he had risen and they didn't really believe her which I find I grapple with quite a bit but I think that she plays an important part in our narrative there and that actually without her I find it difficult to see how it might have panned out. Like who would have been there to find out? I just I just I would have, I just find her fascinating that she's she recurs throughout the stories and named and is named in the Bible. And her name is is something else really, isn't it? Because if you if anyone ever reads Elizabeth Schrader's really important research on Mary Magdalene and Martha of Bethany she really highlights some important things about Mary as a potential challenge to Peter as kind of the, being the forefront of the church and her name meaning Mary the Tower, a bit like Peter the Rock. I love Mary Magdalene, uh, but everyone should read Elizabeth Schrader's research. Very interesting. That sounds good. I I, I, I just think that she is one of those women that is named that is, is a disciple even though she's not called one like I feel like she is she is that she travels with him she she sees his teachings like all the other men and that to me just feels like she's very important and from one important woman to a slightly naughty (laughs) no from one important woman to Esther today we're doing something a little bit different we're going to be talking about the whole of the book of Esther Oh yeah, no pressure, Avril. <laughs> it's one of the books in the Bible considered to possibly be a kind of fictional novel. And so, Avril, with your producer hat on, why is this book convincing as a work of fiction? And would you set the scene a little? Yeah, so Esther is an interesting book because it feels like no other in the Bible for me. For me, the book of Esther, there is there are no mentions of God whatsoever. There is there is nothing. There is no praying. There's no worshipping. There is no mention of his name whatsoever. Now, compared to most other books in the Bible, that is strikingly quite interesting to start with. Secondly, I think that the language that's used within this book is very descriptive. It's setting a scene. It's telling us the the colour of the linens, the 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 
the fact they're drinking out of golden chalices. It's very descriptive language about setting the scene in the palace with the king, which I find is very different from from the other books that are are written within the Old Testament and the New. So Esther tells a story of a of a sort of like plot to get rid of an entire race of Jewish people uh, in the days of like the a Persian king and how and it's about how this was stopped. It also shows the origin of the religious festival of Purim, which actually thinking about this yesterday when I was talking about it with my husband, we were discussing that um, maybe this was a legend in order to help describe how this festival came about which which allows it to be maybe an oral legend that people talk about which is why it's so descriptive and I was thinking about this as a piece of narrative and how it's set out and it very clearly within the book sets out a clear prologue of what happens so the first chapter is very much about the king and Queen Vashti and his his splendour his ego his opulence his his kingliness so to speak and his power and he holds a banquet for six months uh in celebration and in whilst being quite merry he ends up you know asking for his queen to be brought before him wearing just a crown now i classed wearing just a crown as him her just being naked walking through and being shown off to his friends as a kind of trophy wife and he she decides not to come, which for me speaks volumes. It's the setup that he then is sulking. He doesn't get anywhere. He doesn't, the wife doesn't come to him. So he's just like, right, I never want to see her again. And I'm going to sulk in the corner until my, my, my people around me tell me, oh, well, I'll bring you a harem of virgins to make you feel better. Great. So that kind of like sets the scene of the first thing. He's got this massive palace. He has no control over his wife. She won't come to him and she won't be shown off. But actually, that's like the first part. That's setting the scene of where we are. And then it brings in this harem of women. And you just think, right, so what's going to happen next? And then we get into the real mix of it, the real nitty gritty, which is these women being preened and what's the word they use and what are the cosmetic treatments for 12 months i mean i don't know what they're doing for 12 months but you know 12 months to be preened and i can't think of the other word pumped and moisturized and crimped and everything just seems absolutely ludicrous i mean how dirty are these women like they can't be maybe they're just buying some time because they really don't want to have to go into him (laughs) Well, that's the thing. I just think that actually, there. It reminds me of the um, sounds very rudimentary. It, it reminds me of the Ugly Sisters, where they can't do anything better to their faces to make them any prettier in Cinderella. And actually, it's that thought of them being there, looking, just trying to mask who they actually look like. And then we get this beauty that is Esther, that is organized to come into to this where everyone loves her she's incredible she's beautiful she's young and it's 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 interesting because um esther comes into it but she comes into it in a kind of odd way so first of all she's jewish second of all you find out that she has been orphaned and that her uncle is looking after her mordecai and mordecai tells her to not 
allow any of the people on the inside of in the palace to know that she's Jewish and where her kin is. So already you just think, what has he got over her and why is he saying this to her? And so the, you, she's there ready to be primped and preened and cosmetically beautified with spa treatments and moisturisation on every inch of her body. And then it kind of gets to the point where the king, what I believe to be, the king summons the girls. So when the girl is called, they will go and see him and they don't come back till morning. And if he likes them, he sees them again. Now, obviously, he's getting jiggy with these girls. And... (laughs) It's just, it just makes you feel, and obviously you going there and you know that that's probably what's going to happen, but you've got to, if you want to be the new queen, you've, you've got to have a little bit of charm about yourself and you've got to be able to, if that's what you so wish to do, then you're going in there to charm the pants off him basically and make him pick you. Literally. Literally charm the pants off you. So for me, for me, this uh, this the beginning of this story is just one of kind of farce. It's like the queen doesn't want to come naked in front of the in front of the guests, obviously. And then you're now bringing in women to trial out in the bedroom to make sure that they're worthy. That just to me just and my favorite, my very favorite bit of what you call the prologue is where the king's officials are like, well, we can't let the people think that it's all right to refuse the king. Otherwise, all the wives will stop stop obeying. We're going to have to make sure there are consequences to this. Exactly. And that just, that, that feels like they've gone to Vashti. She said, not in a million years, bucko, get out. And then they're all round gossiping, going, what are we going to do? We can't go back to the king without her. We've got to tell her. We've got to make something and let everyone know that the men are there, always the head of their household and they shall be obeyed. And and then they have to go to the king with a with a reason why and then something to stop his anger, like to placate him, so to speak, which I think is just brings itself to those comical restoration plays that we have where it's all physical comedy where the misunderstandings and the overhearings are all what makes it absolutely a great thing to watch it could be a it's kind of a textbook gilbert and sullivan type thing right you're expecting everyone to be married in the end and there's potential for racism which gilbert and sullivan was full of um listeners you should know i really really with every depth of me, just like Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> and as a student, my very best friends were in charge of the Gilbert and Sullivan Society. And so I had to sit through nearly every operetta. So I say this, uh, please don't make a Gilbert and Sullivan style story of Esther. <laughs> we can do better. <laughs> we definitely can. <laughs> um, so... What about the characters? Uh, do we have a textbook baddie and a textbook heroine? Uh, the king seems much more complex as a character towards the end compared with his actions at the beginning. And what would you say was Mordecai's role in the whole thing? So straight off the bat, the the baddie is Haman. Like, he is the, the, the king's 
second in command. He gets put there for no apparent reason, with no real kind of backing to who he is in the story. And he's just like given this power. He seems to be quite conniving and also has his own agenda, I think. He he kind of ruffles over things to the king um, to get his own way. And the king doesn't really remember saying yes to certain commands that he's put out. For example, Haman is, um, expects people to bow to him and Mordecai is at the gates and he doesn't bow. So therefore he decides that that is a, um, he needs to punish all Jewish people. And he goes to the king and he asks um, the king, right, uh, there are people among us that are not right. They don't, they don't, they don't, live up to your laws so i'm going to suggest that we on this date in six months time we're going to put a decree out to all 127 provinces and tell them that they must kill all the jews like i feel like that's slightly rash with someone that just hasn't bowed to you so i feel like he's he the king just says yes do what you want here's my signet ring sign it from me no problem which for me, it's just absolutely crazy. It shows the ineptness of the king in the fact that he doesn't really have control over his over his country and his and his, and what he rules over. He feels, for me, the king feels quite lavish, quite boastful, quite arrogant, quite power hungry. But also, he's easily manipulated by the people who are second in command and by the women. So I feel. Like there is that text with Baddy and Hamlin and he just he goes on and on and on and there's certain things that he he does. He wants people hung. He then wants to be forgiven for his sins, so to speak, and, and it just he's he's very much the baddie for me. So Esther, I think, is the heroine. I feel she she has there are two ways to think about Esther. In essence, she puts herself um out there to save her her fellow Jewish people, where she could get killed. She, when she is asked to, to try and convince the king that he should um, retract the decree and make the Jewish people not be killed, she's not been summoned to him for quite some time. And so she, even by going in front of him, she risks her life to try and ask him to help. And so despite all of that, she still goes ahead and does it. Now she doesn't do it in a in a way that is um, traditional. May I may we say? I think with, that she uses her charms and her seductiveness to get what she wants, which some people might have a problem with. I don't. I think it's great. I think that she. I think she uses what she's got to get what she wants. And the story's full of innuendo, isn't it? The fact that he has to offer her his golden scepter. <laughs> I mean, that is brilliant. Yes, if I get offered his golden, if I get often offered his golden scepter, I am allowed to speak. I mean, that has got fallacy all over it. It's just, of course, it's a golden scepter that she's he's pointing at her. Why wouldn't it be? Why wouldn't it be anything else other than that? Like it just, it's it's the story. The story is just yeah. You're right. Just filled with innuendos. So Mordecai, so Mordecai is really interesting. So I, I think that Mordecai, as Morde- Mordecai is in charge of Esther, he's looking after her because she's been orphaned. And I, I struggle with what part he plays, but I, I want to believe 
that he isn't manipulating her, but I can't help thinking that he is. He tells her not to reveal that she's Jewish. He tells her not to reveal who she is when she goes into the palace. He, they're having secret conversations because they can't speak to each other because he's outside the palace walls and she's inside. And she, at the point where the letter has gone out from Haman that they, they're going to kill all the Jews, Mordecai comes and begs Esther to save them. And in the point of doing that, he's quite clear in him saying that you are also a Jew. Don't think that you are not going to be beyond this. You will be killed too, as you are Jewish. And I think that's really powerful in, in giving her some emotional blackmail to go and risk her life, to go to the king and say, hey, I need you to stop this because these are my people that are all going to die. And it's effectively a genocide of that particular race. So it, for me, Mordecai seems quite manipulative throughout it all, just pushing her buttons. And I'm not sure whether that is that's how I see him. I don't see him as, I see him maybe as redeemed at the end, but I don't see him as a necessarily good person at the beginning. Like I, just trying to conceal something at the beginning is of the inherently of absolutely who you are. At the end of the story, if I remember rightly, Mordecai ends up elevated and, um, and then Esther's kind of forgotten, isn't she? I can't remember if she's referred to right at the end. So she, he's still, so basically the, the thing that does happen, the commander Queen Esther fixed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. So she gets the recognition for allowing that tradition to be annually celebrated in the Jewish culture. But, you know, he is known as Mordecai the Jew. Like he is not mentioned again. Like he, for Mordecai the Jew was next in rank to the king. And he was powerful among the Jews and popular with his many kindred, for he sought the good of, of his people and interceded for the welfare of all his descendants. So it seems to me that last chapter of Esther, he's taking credit for her hard work. He's taking the credit of her going to the king, risking her life, asking for this to be done. And he's just been like, well... I knew it all along, guys. You know, I'm the one that was pulling the strings. She was just my puppet. That is... Yeah, how, how is, do you feel about him now? <laughs> I mean, I just don't like him. <laughs> I I think his purpose is to, to, to tell that story. But I think that from reading around it, this festival, they still read Esther... In, um, in the Jewish festival, this is the part where they read and celebrate her in this uh, Purim. And we don't really celebrate her. We don't really talk about her that much, do we? No, we rarely seem to speak about her. Time seems to be a big thing in the story with lots of exaggeration. You know, six month long parties, year long spa treatments. What do you make of the use of time? Time is very interesting in terms of the fictional narrative of this particular story time 
reinforces that it's a, a work of fiction, I think. And um, a set time frame doesn't really happen in real life. We don't say, oh, in six months time, I'm going to do this, but nothing else happens in between. That it just, it just reiterates a, a, a way of being able to pass time in a, in a, in a story to make things move on a little bit, because it feels a little bit too quick otherwise and I think the time in general it's I mean it could be the fact that the practicalities of getting a letter out to 127 provinces takes a lot of time however I don't buy that I don't buy that one bit I mean the other thing is that in medieval fiction medieval romance specifically um has a big thing about time and things happen in threes and sevens which is very much what happens with Esther. So she goes to the king and asks for a banquet. She then, the next time, she tells him, this is happening to my people and Hammond is the person that's done it. Then the next time she asks, can something be sent out so the Jews can fight back? Now that is three clear things of getting what she wants or or asking the king, drip feeding him, little things. And that is so indicative of medieval romance fiction that it kind of feels that there's then a resolution to the problem at the end when she gets to it, which not everything in life is is tied up neatly in a bow, which seems to be what's happened here. And I think that that is something that's interesting. Now, Obviously, I'm not a medievalist. My husband was talking to me about this trope in medieval fiction, which I think is really interesting because actually it is quite useful to to know that that is something that happens within stories in general. That time past is very is 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 something that we we look at in stories, and it's not not necessarily real life, so to speak. And so, for once, virginity doesn't seem to be the most valued thing about this woman. Yeah. In fact, you you could say that her sexual skill is what saves her people. So, do you think we're more comfortable with this if it's a tale of fiction than, say, Jesus' interactions with the woman at the well? She's tasked with spreading the gospel, even though she's had five husbands. I mean, even I did it then, even though she's had five husbands. The idea that that we have to moralise her choices before she can be an agent of God's kingdom. But with Esther, there's no, there's no moralising at all in this story. And I don't think... I, I thought about this, and actually the fact that it's a story and it's fictional doesn't really bother me like I think that on the surface you know she uses her sexual prowess to get what she wants she makes herself look her best she charms him with her sexuality and and her sensuality and to basically get him to say whatever you want I will give it to you um and I, I, I can understand why some people might think, oh, well, why does she need to do that? But in a part, in a place where you are looking to not be killed, you've got to use every tool in your arsenal to get what you want. And her tool is, she thinks, how am I gonna? I know what he's like. He only likes certain types of women, so I'm gonna make myself be the person he wants and I need to use my skills as a woman 
that probably are, you know, verbal skills. She's got to talk to him and charm him into doing something. And I don't, because it's fiction, I, I wouldn't mind it if it wasn't. I don't think I don't I don't really have a problem with it because what she's doing the end product is her saving her people not necessarily it's not necessarily how she gets there I think that the fact that she's doing it in a kind of fun way that it's been set up it's a kind of farcical story is interesting but I I I don't find it an issue personally that it's I feel like the fact that it's fiction doesn't make any difference to me I think that if this was a person that wasn't uh, that was in the New Testament, I think that you you might feel a little bit uncomfortable, but I don't know why. But I suppose what I'm getting at is that reading this in church. I mean, we don't tend to read all of this in church. We might during morning prayer and evening prayer, but reading this in church wouldn't feel so difficult with it being a an Old Testament piece and b being so outrageous that it kind of it's okay whereas I wonder if you know we go back to Mary Magdalene who for centuries was falsely considered to be a prostitute and that was such a big stumbling block for people that she must have just been a prostitute and so she couldn't possibly be this great apostle to the apostles. She was just a prostitute, a reformed prostitute. And I do think that there is that whore and virgin thing that we do talk about often. You're either a virgin or you're either a, a, a prostitute. And I think that because Jesus doesn't seem to mind, he doesn't take hold that against you, that actually I feel that it is... I agree that if we openly think about Esther in terms of being a story and therefore you can handle the rumbunctious nature of it and the little bit sauciness but you don't necessarily want to associate that with with Jesus because it feels slightly wrong but would he forgive her for what she did because he she saved a race I think so I think he would and I think that we should too because that isn't I mean, would it even be within his scope of thinking? I mean, people seem to think, or people seem to want Jesus to be calling out the woman at the well for having had five husbands. But actually, is it just that Jesus is showing that he knows that woman? And then she is told to go and basically spread the good news. She's another type of disciple uh, whereas I wonder, you know, with the story of Esther, what's there really to forgive? Because she's in a, she's in a potential systematic colonial situation here, uh, and if she's being forced to provide sexual services to the king with a load of other people in our current culture, we would call that trafficking we would call it rape and so she's suffering from a systematic oppression so and I, I guess the problem when with seeing it as a work of fiction is that we can forget that theme and be like oh it's just a fun story and it absolutely is a fun story but with a very dark undercurrent yeah I agree. I think that if when we're talking about the fact that she is potentially part of a trafficking ring, um, you, she wants to get out of it. And she's using every single ounce of her being to do what she can to save 
her people and herself because because that is you would do anything to get out of that situation. I'm not saying she might not want to get out of that situation, but she is using every single thing you to to try and get through to the king that to get what she wants. And so actually she and you know it feels as though she's been sold in there by her uncle. And she's then trying to make the best of things. And the only thing that she has got is that she has recorded that that festival is recorded by her. And that is what she's known for. You can, you know, whether this is an oral, an oral legend of how this festival came about feels that it, it could be told like a story to in that time that that's why there is no mention of god or praying or worshipping of any kind because maybe people are uncomfortable with the connection between a, tra- a, a harem of women's um uh you know uh, pleasing a king it just feels that that is something that people may may not be too keen on yeah linking god with that situation could be very uncomfortable until you get to Greek Esther, of course, which is much less fun. Yeah. <laughs> much less fun. There's lots of... More God, yes. but, you know. Well, it's been fascinating talking to you, Avril. And when will your screenplay of Esther come out? Yeah, shortly in the next uh, few years when I've decided <laughs> to write it. Because in, prepar- in preparation, I was writing the voiceover of the top and what scenes you would have and where the overhearing would happen. And actually that kind of breaking it down when you're reading the text to think what would people want to see and how do you tell that story was a really interesting task to do. So... Thank you for sharing that with me, Charlotte, so that I could do that. Well, maybe it should be a parish pantomime. <laughs> it could be fun, couldn't it? <laughs> that would be quite fun. Well, thank you for coming on the show and um, thanks for being fab. And I hope you get that BAFTA. Me too. I'm going to wear a dress at home drinking champagne all night. Me too, but that's because I do that every night. So, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, April. Thank you. <laughs> You have been listening to the Women's Theology Speakeasy. Please subscribe and tune in again. Bye.